What makes a good leader? Does it change depending on the size of an organization? How do you find your safe place when you have to make an important presentation? And why did Michael Bloomberg have a hard time connecting with voters? These are some of the questions we asked Chuck Garcia, professional speaker, executive coach, best-selling author, talk radio show host, Columbia University professor, and avid mountain climber on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. We explore the role of virtue in work and family to help you find your own fortune. I'm Tom Noser. Chuck Garcia helps executives transform themselves into better leaders. Founder of Climb Leadership International, Chuck trains executives in leadership communication, executive presence, and emotional intelligence. A 14-year veteran of Bloomberg and four years at BlackRock, Chuck talks about how emotional intelligence and empathy are critical for transformative leaders. See if you agree with him on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Chuck, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Yeah, absolutely. So you have many years in leadership training, and uh, you've come to this through being successful in a variety of different businesses. Tell me about what you admire about some of the leaders you've worked with. Like, Who's the best leader you've worked with, and why were they good? The best leader I work with is one of the richest men in the world. But I'm going to say he's not the best leader I work with because he's the richest man in the world. He just Mm -hmm. happens to be. And his name is Mike Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. And I had the good pleasure of joining this organization called Bloomberg when there were less than 200 people. So I joined it at the very front end of what ultimately came to be a company of 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. But what I learned from this individual were a few things that nobody ever taught me in school. And what I admire most about him is the very first comment he made to me. I think it was on my second day on the job, having Mm -hmm. interviewed with him and he hired me. And Mm -hmm. somehow I came to him and I made a slight mistake. I don't remember what it was. And he looked at me right in the eye and he said, Garcia, if you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard enough. And it's not that he encouraged me and my mates to go out there and screw it up. But he very much raised us in a world where the innovations will occur in the mistakes and that if you're always trying to do something perfect, you will stifle innovation. So stop trying to be perfect and go out there and screw it up. (laughs) And and when a leader gives you that kind of space and that kind of confidence, you begin to think, my goodness, Mm -hmm. this is not what they taught us in school. Right. They taught us you got to ace your exams and, and the success goes to the one with the highest GPA. And I was a couple years out of school and I got mm-hmm. to this and I said, my goodness, is this is this the way the world works? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been brainwashed or am I just lucky? Yeah. So that, Tom, is just a sentiment of everything that I have become is very much based on the sentiment of the people that are in my gravity were the so important in helping me to shape my own leadership style. Yeah, it's really interesting. So tell me, why do you think Bloomberg's um, openness didn't translate very well to his presidential campaign? Yeah, Uh, 
one thing we know, and I knew 20 years ago, he had presidential ambitions and his mm-hmm. running for mayor of New York was his test bed to figure out, could he go on a national stage? Right. Unfortunately, much to my chagrin, he, he came into the campaign way too late when the brands and the messages of the others had already been struck. Right. So he already had that against him. But what I noticed is when he stood on stage, when he actually did, his message was just drowned out by everyone else. So no matter what that message could have been, it was hidden in plain sight because mm-hmm. it was on the tail end of all of the energy that had been expended to the kind of candidate we wanted to vote for. Yeah. So I wish he had come in earlier. I think his message would have been received mm-hmm. but because it came in too late. It, it just couldn't gain any traction. That's interesting. So he has a reputation and we don't have to, I'm not going to talk about him the whole time. I'm just curious. He yeah. has a reputation for being a different public speaker than private speaker. Indeed. Did you notice that? Indeed, I did. Yeah. In fact, you know, I've been in his gravity in so many private ways where his approach is compelling mm-hmm. and, and it's intelligent, but it's open minded and it's highly and, and he's got a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And yet when he started running for mayor, people were noticing, wow, is this the guy that you, you speak so fondly of? I just don't right. see it. Right. Yeah, it just didn't translate well. And I think everyone has a different idea as toward what works for them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think when the cameras went on, it's just he comes across differently. Mm-hmm. Yet he he could not have built this multi-billion dollar enterprise without the ability to move others to a cause. Right. And so he was really good at those in his world that mm-hmm. we got behind his cause, but mm-hmm. he didn't have a megaphone. Mm-hmm. It was much more contained. Mm-hmm. And yet when you give someone a megaphone, you begin to see what style is best in the way that they communicate to the world. Yeah. And I think his style was very good in the containment it right. loses a little bit of the energy when it comes out to a broader place. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So do you feel like scale of audience is important to the way someone communicates? Like you and I are talking one-on-one, that's different than if we're addressing an audience. Well, it could be, but in my case, that's, that's not that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. in the case of, of, of Mike, we're talking about it may be, mm-hmm. but I know for mm-hmm. me, and I wrote a book called The Climb to the Top. Right. And it's everything that I learned as I was on stage in the world of Bloomberg and, and post Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. It was a, a framework for how we communicate. I wrote it to be a framework for how we communicate on stage. Right. But as I was writing it, and I was getting feedback from people in my world, what they were mm-hmm. saying to me, Chuck, this isn't just you on stage. This is you with me when we're at lunch. Right. It, it's no different. So I think for someone like me who was just confident or I grew up, mm-hmm. I, I, I grew up to be the person I wrote about. Mm-hmm. To me, communication is no different. You could put me on a stage in front of 10,000 people or you and I can speak one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I'm the same guy. It's not going to yeah. matter. But right. I had years to condition to it. Yeah. For many that didn't have the conditioning like a good athlete. Mm-hmm. what happens, it evokes an emotional response because of the nerves. So oftentimes there is a fight or a flight or some kind of emotional response that changes the manner by which they normally engage. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone in a comfortable place, there's a certain way. And as soon as you put them in a place that causes any kind of anxiety, all of a sudden it changes the style. Yeah. And the key then, Tom, is to be able to find that safe place 
mm-hmm. in spite of the nerves. Yeah. So when you teach communication, what you're really do, doing is teaching emotional intelligence to those that have those kinds of nerves, help them. And it, it is measurable and it is trainable. You can mm. help somebody to bring the same performance expectation of speaking in front of a crowd by accessing the tools that come with this social science called emotional intelligence. That's interesting. So, um, obviously, one of the key components of being a successful leader is the ability, as you say, to inspire others. No doubt. But it's not all of it. No. So, talk, talk to me about some of the other characteristics. And if you were building a leader in a lab... How would you kind of um, make that mix of skills? Oh, indeed. In fact, I think the best way I can do is can illustrate from a couple projects that I was on. As an executive coach, I deal with a lot of C-suites, but Mm -hmm. there were two projects I was on and it was interesting. They were different. One had Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the other yet. Both of these organizations, very large financial services firm, were Mm -hmm. about to create a succession plan. So they each had a CEO that had been around for several years. The CEO had then announced, I am going to, even internally, Mm -hmm. at some point I'm going to sunset in the next 12 to 18 months, I will be gone. We are in the midst of picking a successor. Mm -hmm. In both those cases, I work with the board of directors and it was interesting in the parallels. And when I asked them, what do you want out of your next leader? There was a lot of scratches. And they said, what do you mean? Well, what are the characteristics? And, and one firm came back and gave me 34 characteristics. Oh, gracious. And I said, right. That's what I said. I said, oh, gracious. 34. You, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're looking for Jesus or you're looking for, for, for someone that, that you're, you're setting them up for failure. Right. Nobody can live up to 34. So I tell you what, let's narrow it down. So mm-hmm. we cut it in half. And mm-hmm. then we cut it in half. And one of my chapters in my book is called The Rule of Three. A Greek Mm -hmm. rhetorical technique that Thomas Jefferson adopted to write the Declaration of Independence and Abraham Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address in the Rule of Three. Mm -hmm. Let's distill it to three. Mm -hmm. And some of the reactions were, you can't do that. Well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay. What Mm -hmm. I'm saying is let's use that as a foundation if you want to add 31 others, Mm -hmm. but we can't look for someone with 34. So here's what it came down to. The number one characteristic that each of these wanted from their CEO, three words, grace under fire, Hmm. the ability to remain calm in spite of enormous expectations. Mm -hmm. This was interesting how it now evolved to the second, resolves conflicts effectively. And it was interesting in the exercise that we did to tease this out. What the board said is the CEOs spend a great deal of time in resolving conflicts among their lieutenants, amongst their lieutenants. And they said very passionate people who oftentimes can't agree on the color of money. What did Mm -hmm. the CEO do? And many that I work with, they said, I spend a lot of time in between. And then I got to make the call amidst all of this conflict. Mm-hmm. And here was the third one, Tom, and this was probably the most enlightening to validate that we're in a new era, and mm-hmm. it was an empathetic leadership style. And That's I awesome. say that because mm-hmm. one of the organizations historically, their CEO, mm-hmm. had a right. very commanding and controlling way. Sure. And what they said is, those days are gone. Yeah. The generation that is coming up above has a different expectation for how they choose to be led. Right. And what they want is someone who feels their pain, who mm-hmm. acknowledges, yeah, I know how hard you're working, but let's keep fighting the fight, however they want to put it. 
So think about this. Grace under fire resolves conflicts effectively. And then the last, empathetic leadership style. Right. This is amazing. Nobody's teaching this. Well, this is what I teach right? because this is not what you read about. You don't Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln. Nobody assigns those nine words. Mm-hmm. This is what the marketplace is saying that they mm-hmm. reward in the top three characteristics of the leader. Mm-hmm. And it's communication and it's emotional intelligence. So Very cool. What, that is very cool. So what you've described to me, though, does make me see a leader of a large organization um, and not necessarily a leader of a small, scrappy startup trying to get from, you know, 1 million to 10 million. Do you see, do you, first of all, do you ever work with, with organizations who are smaller and do you see a difference in leadership between them? Indeed, I do. In fact, it's not to say that the three things that I've identified don't apply to the startup, but at a mm-hmm. different d- different point. And here's what happens in these startups. Yeah, Startups generally come with a few different characteristics that have nothing to do with what I just described. Mm-hmm. And the first thing, it starts off with someone with a budding idealism. Mm-hmm. Let's think of Steve Jobs. I want to put a ding in the universe. Right. He had this idealism that I want to stick it to the man. And if I give everybody a personal computer, they got mm-hmm. the power. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. That was his idealism. Mm-hmm. But Steve Jobs was also the ultimate strategist. He th- yeah. thought big things. Mm-hmm. And what he did is he was smart enough to know what I have to do is build around it. And if I, other, if I hire other strategists and I ho- hire other idealists, chances are we're going to butt heads. Mm-hmm. Because we're so overwhelmed and flooded with our idealism, sooner or later, someone's got to execute and get stuff done. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He hires Wozniak, the ultimate implementer. The mm-hmm. guy just goes to work, doesn't care about the strategy. But the reason I say that in the entrepreneur world, the idea is generally born out of a sense of idealism and strategy. Mm-hmm. We identify there is either a need in the marketplace mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. there's the propensity to build the need, to find how we're going to fill something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Idealism in strategy permeates the startup. Yeah. Where the failed startups, Tom, happen where I find is all of that gets in their way mm-hmm. and they're so caught up in the idealism, they forget that they actually need someone to do the execution. <laughs> and they don't do a very good job of building the organization around them. Mm-hmm. They either hire someone like them who simply mimics what they say, mm-hmm. or they don't get the mix right. Mm-hmm. Or, and here's the biggest one, no one ever taught them how to lead. They just command and control and beat their chest and tell everybody this is, right. you don't get it. And and we get a lot of failed states. Yeah, that's um I, I think all of your critiques there of startups to me feel totally spot on. I have another one though. I'd love to get your feedback on. I think startups sometimes don't become businesses. They become financial arbitrage instruments. And that's a very different state than running an ongoing concern. And so you become consumed with raising money and then going through what's supposed to happen with that capital raise and then positioning the company for the next raise. And if the company actually gets run, that's a nice, happy benefit, but it's not the objective. You're, tell me what you think of that. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I had the luxury with Mike. You know, we were, I, I can't mm-hmm. say we were in the startup mode. We were, you know, I joined when it was 70 million, so it was pretty well funded. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that I never had to worry about and what a luxury it was is Mike never measured for quarterly results. 
He mm-hmm. never, he, it, everything was the long run. Mm-hmm. He never talked about the need to, to come up or at least to meet the expectation of a short-term milestone that was a financial target. Mm-hmm. He said, every decision we ever going to make mm-hmm. is for the long haul. And what he said, and he even, and this is what I see now at this point in my life, so many of them are measuring against this very short-term financial goal, and all they're thinking about is selling by the time they get to these milestones. Yeah. They're not thinking about driving value. They're thinking mm-hmm. about how, 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 what, what's the X factor toward mm-hmm. my revenue number. Mm-hmm. And, and what I find is I think their mindset is misplaced. I mm-hmm. think they're focused on the wrong mountain. Mm-hmm. Instead of building value and then building a solid, what Warren Buffett talks about, building an economic moat, mm-hmm. how do I drive like Coca-Cola? I'm not a soda drinker, but I mm-hmm. recognize there are people that buy Coke every time they go to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. So they've created the demand that is scalable enough that someone is always focused on serving the revenue stream because the demand has been built. Yeah, What you're describing is many entrepreneurs I don't say they fail to see that. They don't put that front and center in their goals and objectives. Their goal and objective is to sell at 5X. I I just think they're thinking wrong and they're communicating to the troops wrong. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I I know they're illegal, but I believe that the purpose of a business is to create a monopoly. Yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like that's that's how you you generate the. But I uh, so I also have a um, believe there's such a thing as monopoly profits of love. Which yeah. is so? Let's say I have the corner grocery store, and people come into my. So I used when I was a kid, I worked in a in a family owned pharmacy, and um, people would come into that pharmacy who knew the pharmacists, and who would talk to the pharmacists. And we had the paper that they wanted, and we had the cigarettes that they liked, and and we had you know the right mix of um, pricing at the product level where we did well. You know, so it's like some things, cigarettes, they were at, at cost. Shampoo were probably 50 cents more than across the street. Um, and But what we had was he's established this, un- even though you know pharmacies are a dime a dozen and family pharmacies are almost extinct, at that time, we had established a little monopoly about, well, if I'm going to get my paper, Sunday morning, I want to get the paper and I want to pick up my smokes, I'm going to Hasler's. Yeah. And I, I think it is still possible to establish and ex- to differentiate based on love, based on experience. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, this is the free market that, that, mm-hmm. that we are doing what we can to help the consumer decide what they want to do, that, yeah. that we don't regulate somebody else's decision. Mm-hmm. And I think even in my Wall Street world, where it's very much take no prisoners, mm-hmm. we never thought about the world as having to be fair. It's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We never thought, in, in spite of the fact that we like competition, we only like competition because it drives us to do it better. Mm-hmm. But I work with plenty of CEOs that would love nothing more than to get rid of every competitor in their way. Mm-hmm. And they said, I'd love to do it. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But these competitors keep us smart. Yeah, they do. Right. They keep us on our toes and they keep us wholly adaptable. And what I learned in my Bloomberg days, but also I learned from BlackRock and, and, and mm-hmm. now as a coach, mm-hmm. the success is in the adaptability. It's not necessarily in the strategy and the implementation because the business plans are always changing. Mm-hmm. It's in being 
boldly adaptable and recognizing yes. that you're going to have to take some measured risks, mm -hmm. but it's never going to go as planned. Mm -hmm. The success is going to go to those who recognize I'm going to have to adopt quickly. However, Tom, what mm -hmm. I've seen many entrepreneurs, they dig in. No, no, that's not my vision. That's not the way I saw it. And the world is changing right. around them and they're still yeah. dug in. So yeah. yeah, build a monopoly, build value. Mm -hmm. And and if you become a monopoly, that's a high class problem. I wish that for everybody. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they don't <laughs> let, it, probably, let it be. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's very true. So tell me about the kinds of people who are good students for your leadership practice. And also the flip side of that, have you ever turned people down because you're like, you know, you are just not not going to get it. Yeah, I'll get to the second one in just a minute because there is mm -hmm. reputational risk for those that don't. Yeah, mm -hmm. the best kind of students. I trained a lot of C-level guys, a lot of CFOs, not because I set out to do, but for whatever mm -hmm. reason, many mm -hmm. of the CFOs have been promoted on the strength of their technical competence, their CFAs mm -hmm. or CPAs. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where their education has taken them. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, the job description changes. Yeah. What do they got to do? They got to go mm -hmm. to shareholders. They got to mm -hmm. testify in front of the SEC. Mm -hmm. Got to go into Bloomberg Television or MSNBC, and they said, "Oh my God, mm -hmm. no CPA <laughs> exam ever right. prepared me to talk to MSNBC." Right. And what the CEO says, like, "Be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. you, know, you wanted the job, here it is, but the job mm -hmm. description doesn't look like anything from where you came." And right. that's called the paradox of success. The yeah. things that got me to this point are not going to get me here because the mm -hmm. job description has a different idea of your expectations. Yeah. So what really good a coachy. And I, I coach them for communication skills mm -hmm. and for emotional intelligence. And for mm -hmm. most of them, they never had this. Mm -hmm. They just winged it all along. They got a PowerPoint presentation. They did a mediocre job. Nobody complained. So they just kept doing a mediocre job until somebody said, this sucks. Yeah. Now, though, for those that have raised their expectation and they got to get on the stage, the stakes mm -hmm. are too high to screw it up. Mm -hmm. You just can't go in there and do a mediocre job because th the cameras are on. Yeah. The really good ones, Tom, are the ones who are humble. They recognize they don't know everything. Yeah. They are open-minded. They bring, even if they had a bit of a fixed mindset, this is the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. They begin to see the benefits of the change that comes from the discomfort in the training. Mm -hmm. For To your other side, for yeah. those that I've had to turn down, it's because I felt the fixed mindset wasn't going to change. Mm -hmm. They're masters of the universe. And as far as they're concerned, there's nothing that you can teach me. Look at how far I've come. Right. And then the recognition that no matter what you give them, they're just going to tick the box because, well, I guess it's a good thing, mm -hmm. but they're not really in their heart committed to the change. And so I have turned down a couple of assignments where I've been asked to train them. I always meet a coachee. I generally right. do it over a meal. I want to see right. how they treat the waiters and yes. all of that matters to me. Yeah. And and when I find that they just they're dismissive, they're mm -hmm. closed-minded, or they like, oh, what can you possibly help me with? I do just fine. Right. That's that's a danger zone. So I'm very careful for those that don't bring a humility to it. Chances are that's not going to succeed. So in those cases, how do you handle going back to the person who brought you in and break the news that this, this person's not going to get it? Oh, it's, it's brutal honesty. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I tell them, uh, and I don't couch it in that, mm -hmm. well, I don't know if I'm the right one. I think it's a bad fit. Mm -hmm. And it may mm -hmm. be. Sometimes mm -hmm. the chemistry is bad. Mm -hmm. But what I say to them is I have looked into the eyes of an individual mm -hmm. who, in, no matter how they put it to me, 
Mm-hmm. They are not committed to their change. As far as they're concerned, they're mm-hmm. just going to keep doing what they're doing. I respect it, mm-hmm. but I can't work with someone because it's got reputation. And I, I'm very honest about it. Yeah. It's my reputational risk. Right. If we don't do like like a lawyer that picks his cases, mm-hmm. want to pick the ones that wins. Mm-hmm. I'm not married to always coaching one that I know is going to have a successful outcome. The mm-hmm. only thing I'm looking for is an open mind and some humility. And mm-hmm. if I don't see either one of those two, it's not going to work. And I tell mm-hmm. them that go find another coach. Mm-hmm. And they do. There's mm-hmm. a million guys that do what I do. Yeah. So how have you seen, or have you seen over time, the idea of leadership change? So, um, I would say, you know, we, we all have um, a degree of uh, unconscious bias. So like if you asked me to close my eyes and imagine uh, an athlete or you asked me to close my eyes and imagine a CEO, I would probably see two different images in my mind. Indeed. Um, and so how have you seen um, concepts of leadership change and have they become more inclusive in any way? Or is it is it now we're sort of asking uh, women and minorities to look more like men. Oh uh, yeah. The, uh, you know, you're, <laughs> you're touching in a danger zone here, but, but I'll yeah. explain why. Okay. Um, just as I said in the succession plans, looking mm-hmm. for an empathetic leadership, wh- yeah. what I often do in a project, I will draw a straight line. Mm-hmm. Have, it's a continuum mm-hmm. and I'll put on the very right hand side of this, this line, something mm-hmm. called command control. Yep. And I'll put on the very left-hand side of the continuum something called collaborate and connect. Right. And what we know is if you were on the battlefield and the colonel told the major who told the captain, shoot, that's right. a very command control. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just mm-hmm. that's the style of the military short mm-hmm. of not notwithstanding Navy SEALs. That is mm-hmm. the infantrymen mm-hmm. on the battlefield. Sure. Then on the other side, you have collaborate and connect. That's the googly way of leading. Mm-hmm. That is that is the Navy SEAL way where there's a mm-hmm. flat structure. There's You're not captive to the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's the recognition that no matter your rank, mm-hmm. everybody has an opportunity to throw their, 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 their name into, the, into, into whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. What I found, Tom, over the last two generations, and that, that shows my age, I graduated mm-hmm. from college in 82. So my emergence was in the 80s and in the Garden of Eden in the 90s, when mm-hmm. it was a phenomenal time to be on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. What I saw was a shift in the continuum, mm-hmm. not just in leaders adopting a different style for the style's sake. Mm-hmm. What I saw was the emergence of a generation that had a different way that they expected to be led. Right. And a lot of that is driven by the social media where now everybody is banging into their social media and they're expressing their opinion. Mm-hmm. And what happened is this cultural shift for better or worse mm-hmm. where Gen Z was coming in and saying the workforce is different. Mm-hmm. You're not going to sign me a leader. I'm going to decide where it is and who it is I want to be led by. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. And so instead of being told you will be led, followership is a choice now. Right. I right. choose to be led by Sergey Brin at Google or whatever right, it right, right. is. Mm-hmm. Because the generation now is not beholden to any one job. 50 right. years ago, look, here's the door. Mm-hmm. Well, now if you tell someone mm-hmm. there's the door, fine. Right. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they, they walk out. They walk out. <laughs> right. And I said, there's a million right. other places to go. So mm-hmm. think about this is followership a choice 
or mm-hmm. is it compliance? You choose mm-hmm. to be led by Tom. Right. I am complying to be led by that jerk. Right, right. It, it's, it's tougher these days. So um, with um, uh, you brought up something I wanted to talk about, which is the, the difference between an individual contributor and a leader. There are a lot of people who really don't in their heart want to lead. They believe they maybe they have to yeah. to increase their income right. or to increase their prestige, but they don't really want to lead. How do you, does your curriculum help people who are actually better off as individual contributors? Yeah, that's what we call the reluctant leader because they're, they're, to your point, there's a recognition that if I want to earn more money, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to put myself in a place that is, if I'm going to take their money, I'm going to have to do mm-hmm. it their way. Mm-hmm. And it's a real conflict among individual contributors who are very content, but mm-hmm. ultimately, if they don't take a leap into that next unknown, two to three years later, what typically happens, Tom, they resent or they regret the fact that they didn't do it because they see everybody else emerging ahead of them. Mm-hmm. So what we'll, di- what we'll typically do when we have an outstanding individual contributor Mm-hmm. We really have to make certain what do you want today, but what, what we can, uh, at least what I can generally foresee, mm-hmm. it would be inconceivable to think that who you are three years from now is exactly the same person who you are today and that you would always make the same decision. Mm-hmm. I, I don't buy it. I think people are not very good at forecasting how their evolution and what their decision models are. Mm-hmm. Where you are at 30, you're going to be different than someone at 40, almost always. Mm-hmm. So what I try to help an individual contributor, if I'm fortunate enough to be in their gravity, I help them to try, don't try to predict the future, just have an open mind to recognize what is the consequence of continuing to pass on these leadership jobs. And most of them, Tom, the reason that they resist those leadership jobs is because they're too damn scared to Mm -hmm. go into that unknown. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is to inspire them and let them know that our job, and this is what I love about Google, Google is very conscious with their employers to provide a safe space to allow someone to try and fail and not be held held captive for it, accountable, Mm -hmm. but not Mm -hmm. captive. So Mm -hmm. if you create the space that puts someone in, it should be a little bit uncomfortable. It always should. Mm -hmm. Think about Mm -hmm. any of us runners or mountaineers. It's damn Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's worth it in the end. Help them to recognize that the cost of inaction could be more expensive than the cost of action and making mistakes and being out of your comfort zone and Mm -hmm. and having to remove obstacles, which one is going to be better for you in the long term. And Tom, sometimes that conversation says, hey, Chuck, I get it. Yeah, I I am willing to do what does not come naturally to me. Please train me and help me to get there. The majority of the time people cross that chasm. For those small percentage that don't, they're good. They're very secure mm-hmm. in where they are. They right. don't regret it later. It's a smaller mm-hmm. percentage, but it's there. That's really interesting. So it's um, so like I have I have kids in my twenties in yeah. their twenties. Excuse Same. me. Um, and. Uh, your point about who you are today is not the same person you're going to be three years from now. Indeed. How do you translate that into your parenting? Like, how do you do mm-hmm. use that as a way to try to um, guide your kids? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That that is the mystery. I too have four children. Mm-hmm. They're uh, 
three of them in their 20s, one of them mm-hmm. early 30s. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same way, but I think what we do as parents, and I think what I've always tried to do is lead by example. Mm-hmm. I never preach to my children. I, I don't mm-hmm. tell them the way it is. I try to sell the benefits of why it is I've decided to do things, and, and it's dinner table conversation. Hey, mm-hmm. Dad, why did you leave Bloomberg? Dad, why mm-hmm. did you do this? Why did mm-hmm. you? And I try mm-hmm. to give them at least the sense that I have used my experience to be reflective, but I have one thing that you don't have. And the thing that I have is wisdom that was generally is the name I give to my mistakes. Yeah. And what I encourage my children to do is very much the way I've led mine is never be afraid to make a mistake, but always be afraid of not learning from them. Mm-hmm. And that's how I lead by example. And I create for my children a very safe space to screw up. Mm-hmm. I never put pressure on my kids were great students. I never, I barely even looked at a report card over time. Mm-hmm. I never put pressure on the grades. I put, if, it, if I applied any pressure, it was on the learning outcomes. Mm-hmm. I don't give a damn if you walk in there with an A and B. I really don't care. One of my kids went to an Ivy League, three did not. The one who went to the Ivy League, I never even, never looked at a report card because mm-hmm. she was so self driven To my other kids, though, it was very much about what do you want out of this experience? It's not for me to say what you're going to get out of that. Mm-hmm. I am allowing you all the space for you to figure it out. And if mm-hmm. you need my help, I'm here. And if you don't, carry on. And, and that's, you create a safe space for your children. Tom, I teach at Columbia where many come with their, with their, their parents have these enormous unrealistic expectations that their kids should be a CEO by the time they're 24. Yeah. And, and many of them, they're nervous. They're, they're, they're freaked out. They're mm-hmm. afraid of mistake. And I don't want to cast aspersions on any other parent, but mm-hmm. what seems to me is they have not grown up in a place that allows them to screw up. So yeah. they just stay in their lane. And here's the interesting part. They don't become a CEO by 24. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they become a less anxious person. Right. Yeah. I, I just want them to be happy. You know, yeah. like success is great, mm-hmm. but I've known plenty of people that have succeeded and made millions of dollars and they're miserable human beings. Yes. It's not for me to say that's good or bad. I, just it's my observation of what do you want out of this life? And if that's what you want, that's good. Right. I think for most people in my world, I just want them to be happy. And if I can help you to be happy... There's, it's a no judgment zone. Yeah, I think this. That's. Um, I feel like communicating at work, communicating with the people who I'm working with, is an enjoyable process. Indeed. Um, and I'm finally getting to the point to where sales is an enjoyable process for me. Um, and it's because I'm now treating it as I'm making friends, and I'm not focusing on trying to get someone to a particular outcome. I heard a really good salesperson recently describe though sales is a chess match. And I do think that's true. Um, but it's a chess match, hopefully among friends. Uh, well, it is, but I think it's a good metaphor because it's about actions and reactions. It's about moves and counter moves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my years of sales at Bloomberg was all about everything I learned was very tactical. It was about the question, the mm-hmm. response, mm-hmm. the next question, the response as a mm-hmm. rock climber. I'm always conscious of the next move and rock climbing is a chess match because mm-hmm. you're always having to think one or two moves ahead. However, mm-hmm. all you can do is one move at a time Yeah, because you don't know what the reaction is going to be to the move. And you can't think about the hundred permutations that could occur as a result of the move. Mm-hmm. But I think we can apply even our lives. Dating is a chess match. 
That's true. It is. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You're at dinner and you're negotiating whatever that is. Mm-hmm. You're with your boss. It's a chess match. You want $100,000 more and they want to give you $2,000 more. Mm-hmm. Can you meet in the middle? Well, the negotiation begins. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the reason for the popularity of all these chess shows that are coming up in the movies, like The Queen's Gambit and Netflix, mm-hmm. it was fascinating to watch that show. We sat there watching a show about chess and mm-hmm. we couldn't look away. Yeah. Because it was so applicable to the way that we lead our lives, a move. Mm-hmm. What's the counter move? Mm-hmm. What do you do next? What's the emotional reaction? Mm-hmm. What we know about the great chess players, they don't necessarily have to be the smartest tactically, but mm-hmm. back to the Mike Bloomberg world, it's because they were more adaptable. They kept their con- motions under control and mm-hmm. they were able to sensibly make a move without being flooded by the emotional triggers that causes a response to do something poorly mm-hmm. that's um i keep saying that's interesting but a lot of what you say is interesting so <laughs> <laughs> i hope uh, to our listeners they find it interesting right. and right. i just feel like i need to get a better reaction um so I'm I'm curious about how you manage fear. So you talk about the emotional response. You are a mountain climber. Indeed. Getting up on stage for many people is a very frightening experience. No question. How have you learned to manage fear? Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you put it that way because I think many people look at, be it mountaineers or a guy like me that stands in front of a million people. I don't see a million people. And, mm-hmm. and I, I see one. But mm-hmm. none of us. None of, and and I say that about any human being, every human being fears. It Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. It's the ones that get comfortable in the recognition that the outcome might not be what you expect. Mm -hmm. And how you manage fear is based on probability. Mm -hmm. It's it's like being a baseball player. Mm -hmm. If you hit three, and it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. I know the best baseball players in the world get out seven out of 10 times. And I know that that's a well-worn metaphor, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a good one because so many people that fear, that fear is really a fear of judgment. Mm -hmm. It's not a fear of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's not a fear of an error. It's Mm -hmm. a fear about what other people are going to say. So what I hope that people will do when I get them to manage fear is the recognition, or at least to develop the mindset, and it can be developed, that no matter what you decide, there's only one person who, is, who, who, who can hold you accountable for that, and that's you and not anybody else. Mm-hmm. But I think what I find, particularly in my coaching practice, is many people have this fear that they, they read social media and they see what everybody else is doing, and they feel good by just doing what everyone else does, even though it may be contrary to their own values. Yes. I think this is everyone has to come to a term with themselves that if that's where you want to be and you don't want to manage the fear, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Stay right where you are. No Mm -hmm. fear, no judgment, but nothing will change. Mm -hmm. And I think you got to sell the benefits of that change, that if you're going to manage the fear, you're going to have to be willing to take punches. And by that, I mean, not literal punches. I mean, you are going to have failures that somebody is going to say, look, buddy, you screwed up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Show me. Anyone who is hyper successful and they will point to the multitude of errors they have made and Mm -hmm. begin secure enough to know once that happens, I put it behind me and I move on. That's Mm -hmm. how you manage fear. Not by thinking that, oh my God, I'm going to run into the next roadblock. It's Mm -hmm. the recognition that I did the best I could on that roadblock. Bring me another one. I'll try it again. So so you've worked with a lot of very successful organizations. Indeed. Have you seen any of them 
be more concerned about what they're learning and less concerned about performance metrics. So they're sort of reframing the concept mm -hmm. of, of KPIs. And rather than saying like, what are we getting done? They're looking more at what are we learning? Well, on, they're, they're, well I'm, I'm really glad the way you framed it because there are a small, and it's a small percentage. The majority, Tom, are only focused on the KPIs. What right. is, he, here is the task, here mm -hmm. is the outcome, and right. did we perform? Mm -hmm. However, you look at the great, and this is where John Wooden, and I'm dating myself here, but he, he was a great coach for UCLA. Yeah. When you read his book, and Mike Krzyzewski, I think at Duke is the same way. And I'm not, not that I'm a big basketball fan, but I've learned a mm -hmm. lot from these coaches because I'm a coach, not mm -hmm. for basketball. Mm -hmm. But what they talk about is, is don't, and Phil Jackson, he's a good one too. Don't focus mm -hmm. on, on, on scoring the point. What mm -hmm. we as a team are going to focus on is how we're going to get the, the ball to the place that gets us to the point. And mm -hmm. Krzyzewski, if ever I've watched his practice once, because he used to coach at West Point where I grew up. So he, mm -hmm. he was the Army basketball coach when I was a kid. And oh, I remember wow. watching him. And he always talked about the next pass, the next pass. Nobody's going to shoot this ball. All right. you're going to do is the next pass. Mm -hmm. The small percentage of companies that I work with have mm -hmm. the mindset, don't focus on the result, focus mm -hmm. on the fundamentals of the game. And that's right. BlackRock, where I worked for years. Yeah. What I loved about BlackRock, they were, they were a process-oriented organization that mm -hmm. focused on the process. Don't even think mm -hmm. about the future. Mm -hmm. Pass the ball to the next guy. That's all you got to do. Mm -hmm. And if we stick to the fundamentals of the process, the mm -hmm. success will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to be brilliant and focus on the outcome. Just mm -hmm. be consistent and focus on the next pass. 10% of the companies have that. 10% mm -hmm. of the companies run the world. Yeah, I was say that what you're describing to me there is an organization at scale. Because I don't know what the what the process is until I figure it out. I figure it out by typically making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Good point. I have to be very um, flexible in my process. Indeed. It, yeah, to me, it's trial and error. Yeah, but what, what I'm trying to do is like, how do I have the most intelligent trial and error that I can? Right. So like in science, if an experiment fails, it doesn't fail because you didn't get the outcome you wanted. It fails because you didn't control the variables in the experiment where you could make a conclusion about what happened. So to your point, you followed incorrect scientific process. But if you follow that this, the experimental process correctly and you get an outcome different than your hypothesis, you still succeeded. It just means you got a different outcome than you expected. And so I, I feel like... Um, so I spend a lot of time in product marketing mm -hmm. and I believe a product has to have a market hypothesis mm -hmm. and you should be continually testing that hypothesis. You know, it's typically we, we talk about the value proposition. So what do I think is what's important about my product? And, and I, I'm curious in your experience in a coach, when you get to the end of your engagements and people say to you, what was most valuable? Is it what you think it was going to be or something different? No, it's not. Well, first, let me comment on what you said before, where the, the really good scientists that I've worked with, most of them will all agree on the recognition that you got to get a lot of things wrong mm -hmm. before you get one thing right. Mm -hmm. And that's Thomas Watson, you know, mm -hmm. 10,000 ways not to light a bulb. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right? So interesting on the coaching, it is, wow, I wish I had an, it is so unpredictable what sticks. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done, I don't know, I don't know how many hundreds of assignments where 
mm-hmm. when we, we, we do it in the end and we find out, you know, what was the, the three most important outcomes, mm-hmm. it's never what you expect. It's often little things they pick up along the way that they put into their head and become habitual. And it mm-hmm. may not be the things you expect. So I go in there and I teach them how to get on stage, which is body language and emotional appeal. And what's mm-hmm. the first thing you're going to say? What's the last thing they're going to say? And you know what they remember most? Mm-hmm. How I eliminate or how they eliminated the usage of filler words. I didn't train someone to not say, uh, um, you know, like, and so now that's a part of my training, b- but it's one chapter among 10. Mm-hmm. And yet here I am, as soon as they start eliminating the filler words, everything else gets better. And, and so you don't know in order for everything to get better the origin of where people come is 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 always going to be different because whatever toolkit you have mm-hmm. you don't know what is going to what one person is going to key in on right. and the really good ones find one thing to fix yeah one leads to two two leads to four it becomes geometric yeah. and it's really cool that everyone has their own thing mm-hmm. and just as with our children, what I found with my kids, they all developed at different things in different times with different skills, different, their mm-hmm. evolutions were so different mm-hmm. in a world where we're always seem to try to do, get everyone to do everything at the same time. That's nuts. It is nuts. <laughs> but we do it anyway. Everybody who's a sophomore in high school should be able to do. Right. There's a lot I, I don't remember it, at all about that year. <laughs> well, I, I've seen even in college and people that I coach, mm-hmm. nobody develops at the same rate on anything. No. They no. just do it in their own time. So to the parents yeah. of the world, just let your kid be. They'll, they'll get there. It just may not be when you expect. Yeah. So was, um, I used to do a demonstration in class when I would talk to people about uh, complex organizations where – I had two pictures. One was clear and one you couldn't see in. And I had put in the one you couldn't see in, um, what is it, uh, high C on the bottom, like purple high C. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would take the water, the clear one, I, I'd say, okay, this is you talking to your audience and you're, you're pouring this information into them. And I'd say, and this is when you ask your audience what you said and you pour it back out and it comes out, it's totally purple. And, <laughs> and I'd say to, you know, like, oh, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And if I'm talking to a financial audience, usually they're like, oh, that's terrible. This happens to all the time. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, other audiences would be like, well, I'm not really sure. And I would say this is an essential thing because every complex organization requires distributed expertise. Yeah. Not everybody at Bloomberg had the same job. Indeed. And oh, wow. so those, when you share, people take input, raw material, information, whatever, they attach it to their prior knowledge and they create something new with it. And so your point about, I don't know what they're going to pick up on, and but if they get one thing, they start to get multiple things. That says a lot to me about the nature of discipline and the nature of prior knowledge and learning, which is that I have to have some way to attach to this thing. But once I get that, I can begin to make it my own. So Indeed. I'm, in fact, I think what you're speaking about is to many people, the, the confidence is gained in some of these little milestones that they don't, don't think of. And I don't mean little, I don't mean to diminish it, mm-hmm. but, but success in, in, even in my coaching project is not one thing. It's mm-hmm. not one big leap. 
Mm-hmm. It's a lot of little things along the way. Mm-hmm. And what I find is when you have a coachee that is gaining confidence in one area, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I begin to see the confidence fuels other tools that they're willing to use. And they're also get to a much safer place where if they've succeeded in one aspect of it, they're willing to take bigger risks in the next. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they recognize that it may not be perfect every time, but they get more confidence in their adaptability and the adjustments in order to get to their goal. That mm-hmm. time is the biggest key to success to me. It's mm-hmm. not where you are in an event. Mm-hmm. Like any great athlete, it's your ability to adjust to the circumstances of those events. Mm-hmm. So when a football team goes into halftime, they say, look, we're down 12 zip. What are we going to do? And they come back out and next and they score three touchdowns. Yep. That's Bill Belichick. It's all about the adjustments. Don't worry about what the past was. We can't change that. But mm-hmm. what we can do is determine the third and the fourth quarter. So here's what we're going to do because the adjustment, the defense adjusted to us. Now we've got to, we've got to lead that adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel like that's marriage, which you described. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Yes, uh, I've been talking about 30 years with Anna. Hopefully we're, we're at halftime. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm very blessed. It's, it's marriage. Good marriage is a game of continual adjustments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to, um, as we start to wrap up a bit, um, I want to ask you where in your own work, do you feel like you've fallen short? So as a leader, you're building an organization, you're developing a whole e-learning platform. Yeah. You're going to have to bring in people who don't have the same expertise you have. Yeah. Where are you falling short of your own uh, ideals of leadership? Yeah, where, where I fall short, I think, is sometimes in this world of science and metrics and everybody wants everything numbered, mm-hmm. sometimes I try to bring more intuition to a world that is demanding more metrics. Mm-hmm. And I've had to do a very good job, and sometimes I don't do it particularly well, where sometimes when I'm, I have to be able to defend or to help somebody, and I didn't bring any metrics or science to it, I just talked about the way I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you feel about things is okay, but when you're doing that to, a, to an organization that is all about the metrics, that if you can't measure it, then you're no good to me, mm-hmm. I've had to do a better job of measuring the things that people want measured. They are not interested in how I feel and they don't want my opinion. Mm -hmm. What they want is a clear key performance indicator. And if I can't measure it, I can't defend it. So Chuck, if you cannot measure this thing, you are no good to me. Hmm. And Tom, I've had to, unfortunately, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. uh, it's been my own evolution that if somebody, somebody wants data-driven analysis and I go in there with my heart and they want a mind, I have mismatched an expectation and I've yeah. screwed up. So I've yeah. had to do a better job in the measurement of those things that they want measured. That's Yeah. Um, I remember when I was in education research, I was talking to a colleague about a, a, um, a study we had done. And hit, when I told him our conclusion, he said, why do we have these studies to tell us what we already know? <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I, what you said. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like... Um, Somebody our, made a lot of money. <laughs> right, right. So, so, but I feel like in some ways, this sort of concept management science, it's like, well, show me the data. Tell me how you got to that conclusion. Yeah. You know you know why accounting is called accounting? Because it's a counting. You can make it anything you want. There, You know, it's like you can, within reason, there is certain creativity and, and, you know, you can unethically exclude certain data and promote others. And, and so that it's not like we have eliminated all judgment and wisdom. And now we are, you know, running our organization scientifically. I don't think that's true. Yeah. You know, and I think all of us, particularly as leaders, 
I should never underestimate the importance of intuition. It is important. In fact, if you ask any great CEO, many times they'll tell you, sometimes I just got to drown out all of that ridiculous, no, not ridiculous, I got to mm-hmm. drown out all that noise. Mm-hmm. I got to bring my intuition because we, we do feel, and, and our intuition is a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. But sometimes my own failing is I have to better recognize mm-hmm. when it's time to rely on my intuition and when it's time to rely on the science. Mm-hmm. Part of my evolution, I keep trying to get it better, and now I'm I, I'm seeing the appreciation for the people that take an approach that's not mine, yeah. and I understand it. Yeah, that's um, that brings me very well to the last question I want to ask you, which yeah. is about succession. Yeah, and um, so we tend to hire people who look like us. Hmm. We yeah. tend to define excellence by people who do things the way we do them right. if we think we're excellent at it. Indeed. Those are not long-term, let's just say, those habits need to change. They the benefit do. of democracy for the benefit of our organizations, I those agree. habits need to change. So as you are helping people with succession, what can you do to allow more people into that conversation about what constitutes excellence. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, to your point is, is when, when you're getting that kind of buy-in as to who we're going to hire people that don't look like us, you look at Abraham Lincoln, a team of rivals, mm-hmm. you know, he was one of the, everybody agrees on what a great guy he was, but what, what, what we, what we agree about with, with Abraham Lincoln is he didn't want yes men coming to the table. He mm-hmm. wanted alternative points of view. Mm-hmm. So when we look at excellence, but, but Lincoln was the first one to say, no matter what those alternative approaches are, I am the one who's held accountable. That is my responsibility and I will accept the failures of that accountability. Mm-hmm. What I think about when we look at excellence, what that means, it is the individual who doesn't hire people that looks like him or her, but hires the compliment yet why may passionately disagree and it's all about that accountability, mm-hmm. recognizes no matter what that is, the buck stops with me. So you give me your A, B, C, your Republican Democratic ideals, and I'm the one that's got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Excellence is the one who's willing to make the call in spite of all of the contrary evidence, hold themselves accountable, and then be willing to adjust accordingly. That, to me, is excellence. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, Chuck, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come on your program. Anytime. I hope we have you back. Yeah, you bet. The Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help businesses implement product management culture to plan more insightfully, lead more effectively, and grow more rapidly product consulting, sales enablement, research and analysis, Fortune's Path. Deep thinking, hard working, always learning. Special thanks to Chuck Garcia for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are by my son, Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path.